This is the Work and With series, presented by your host, Haley Sudbury. Listen in each month to find out who we're working with. Haley sits down with some of the world's most exciting leaders and entrepreneurs to chat about the companies they love, their definition of success, and the real secret behind it all, their superpower. So I'm with Eric Collins today, COO of Touch Surgery. I had the pleasure of uh, meeting Eric through his, uh, I guess he's being profiled with Q Series and was delighted to find another LGBT C-level tech leader in London. There you go. Uh, so I've invited Eric to join us in our office today for, uh, for a Working With podcast. Um, Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Touch Surgery? Touch surgery is a, and first of all, let me, I should say thank you, Haley, for having me. It's always good to be able to come out and talk to another entrepreneur about some issues that are of interest. And since you've told me that part of this conversation is going to be about inclusion, which is an issue which is near and dear to me, I think, and near and dear to touch surgery, it's always, that's a pleasure. Um, so touch surgery is a surgical simulation environment. Our solution was created by two surgeons who made a decision that the way that surgeons were being trained wasn't really scalable and was really quite from the 1700s. The idea that in order to be a good surgeon, what you do is you participate in an apprenticeship. I, you observe someone, you then assist someone. After that assisting, they assist you, they observe you, and then you're ready to do whatever that surgery is. When you think about the number of surgeries there are, that's a very inefficient way to get any particular individual ready to do a host of, of surgical types. Now, most surgeons are specialists, so they can sort of take a subcategory. But if you think about the world, and there was a Lancet study that was done a few years ago, and that Lancet study said that there are about 2 billion people in in the world who have access to safe surgery, and there are about 5.5 who do not. So the question of how do you ever get to the point where those 5.5 have access? Well, it's not going to be training one or two people or ten, training five or 10 in a particular specialty per hospital every year. That's not going to do it. Um, in order to do that, you probably need something that's going to simulate the surgical environment. Do it. Do that simulation instead of in a big room like you would if you're learning how to fly an aircraft, a 3.8 and a 3.80, but do it someplace that people actually have access to all the time. So do it mobile first, and then don't necessarily practice what it feels like cutting through flesh, but what are the cognitive steps that are necessary, step one through step 700 of a surgery, and use the simulation to actually get a person familiar with that, make it interactive so they have the opportunity to engage and really sort of get some of the um, choices that you have to make and not only have them learn, but then have them test with the same solution. Have it all connected so that you can then track your progress and then make that available around the world. So that's the business that we're in. And we found ourselves to be successful insofar as we have over 2 million people around the world who are using our solution. Most, many of those surgeons, not most of them, but many of those surgeons. And we have um, over a hundred different surgeries that are now on our platform. So we're proud of that fact. And so what we're trying to do is make the world a safer place for surgery. That's that's our mission. Some impressive stats there. Not bad. And do you think actually there's an option to even speed up what is the traditional 
medical even schools so the training process before one becomes a surgeon is that is that kind of where it can go because maybe i'll actually change careers and become a doctor listen to you. <laughs> well i don't know if i want you practicing tracheotomies just yet you know use our <laughs> use our simulation and learn how to do a tracheotomy but i would not recommend you perform one but i do think that what you could say is in a place where there might not be so if we we have um a lot of doctors from places like um cambodia we have some doctors from places like the ivory coast and what we'll hear from some of these people is that what they, what they're asked to do on a daily basis is that they are asked to perform some surgeries, which they might have seen once or they might have experienced once when they're in medical school, but they have to do it for emergency reasons fairly soon. So what do you do? You go to YouTube, you go to a medical school book, you try and figure out sort of how to do it and then using your experience, then come up with a solution. And that often works very, very well. Another method would be, so instead of doing that, let me go through the cognitive steps along with touch surgery. I might even take that into the operating room with me and I have sort of a step, a more of a step-by-step guide. So could you perform that surgery? Well, if you never cut into flesh, probably not my recommendation. But could there be people who are not surgeons but who have had medical training who would, you know, there's an attend, there are lots of attending um, uh, nurses, there are lots of attending, or there might be other people who in the ecosystem of uh, the hospital or in the, surg- in the um, surgical theater who might be able to perform a bit more by having this sort of this sort of training and having this sort of tool with them that helps to supplement and augment their training. And of course I say augment, when you think of augmentation, then you think in our business about sort of do you augment the reality of the situation? How do you deliver that augmentation into the surgical room? And if you can do that, then I think you certainly get to a space where you could help people who don't have that much training in a particular type of specialty be able to perform very well because we're augmenting their basic and core knowledge with additional knowledge in real time. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Maybe maybe in a later a later lifetime. Mm-hmm. But we are here to talk about entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. and you know, lots of people do have great ideas, and only a handful of those turn them into great businesses and entrepreneurship. You've advised and been part of several startups, so mm-hmm. not just touch sur- surgery. What's the most important thing in turning an idea into a valuable company? I really, you know what I think the most important thing is? I I think that there are, I was listening to one of your original um, podcasts. I was listening to Rory talk. And, you know, Rory, who's a BGF and fantastic entrepreneur, works with a good friend of mine, um, Harry Briggs, and Simon also. It's a talented group of people, and they do very, very interesting things. When I listened to him, he said the there are lots and lots of great ideas, and you've got to assume that if you have a great idea, there are a hundred other people who are working on that same idea someplace else. I sort of concur with that. So the thing that I believe separates one good idea from another, aside from execution ability, is the team that you assemble to work on that. And I'm so, I'm more and more persuaded, having been now in four or maybe even five entrepreneurial ventures at a, at a senior level, the, the thing that differentiates those that really succeed and those who do okay has to do with the team which is assembled in order to address problems and how that team actually deals with because it's all about problem solving. I wish it were about just sort of, you know, great storytelling, fantastic narratives up and to the right all the time. It's for me it's always been a series of problems and how well can you solve them and then maybe up and to the right happens in the, in the time frame that you hope. So for me it's all about the teams that you can assemble around that idea and get them engaged and enthused and on the same page in their working. That's that's the critical piece. So the right team for hockey stick growth. Correct. Absolutely. What didn't you know when you started out on your career path 
And how do you think you'd do things differently now? <laughs> I, I think, you know, when I started out in my career path, I thought that hard work was the answer to everything. That indeed my hard work, whether solo or with a group of people, like-minded people, would actually be noted and then be able to advance in a logical way to conclusion. Didn't realize that there's a bit of luck, that there is a, a lot of, you know, um, switchbacks. So if you're climbing, you know, you do these switchbacks to make your climb easier, that you sometimes are, are sort of going to have to move backward in order to be able to move more effectively forward. Things that I just didn't realize that sometimes we have to retrench. Sometimes we actually have to downsize. Sometimes we have to go back to, you know, core thinking before we're able to then move forward. Those were not things because as a person who, and this is your experience too, I'm sure you continue down a trajectory or down a path. You went to school, you did well in school, you studied, you continue and you just continue. And there's sort of these milestones that tell you that you've gotten to the next space. There might be high stakes tests. There might be something that you have to do do, but it tells you that you're passing on to the next phase. And that's not something that after you become an entrepreneur, those things actually exist so clearly. And I think there are a lot of great business books. There are a lot of these. There are a lot of um, books about um, entrepreneurs. And they seem to be able to tell these fantastic stories. And everyone seems so smart about and having known that everything, <laughs> that, that they made the right choice here and, it was and that they did the analysis and everything was going to be right. For me, I wasn't prepared that there are so many choices and that what I was often having to do after ma having made a choice was possibly remake that same choice time and time again. So that's something I didn't realize. I did not realize. So quite a different path once you leave kind of formal education, which has very set milestones, mm -hmm. just working out how life actually does work. Mm -hmm. For me. Who was it that championed you along the way? You know, at the length of my career, I wish it could, I could say one person. There have been so many, you know, in addition to my family. So my family and my partner, those have been my chief and consistent champions. Even as my parents are now in their 80s, you know, they're constantly interested in sort of what I'm doing. Uh, my partner, we've been together for 23 years. And Michael always wants to know sort of what's happening is sort of, you know, you're doing the right thing, even if it's hard. Keep on going. That's my that's my real champion. Within organizations, I found that I would not have been able to make things happen without having champions who either had formal or informal mentor relationships with me, as well as people who were speaking on my behalf in other sort of circles. I would give an example of how I came to touch surgery as, in fact, one of those examples. So I came to touch surgery from another organization called SwiftKey. So in 2016, SwiftKey, which was a um, AI company that dealt with predictive text um, on head handsets, particularly iOS and Android, they got acquired by Microsoft. What a great thing. You know, sort of sensational things are happening. And I was there for the uh, growth and sort of this um, exit. And then I stayed on for a bit to transition things uh, for because I was um, chief revenue and distribution officer at that organization. And then after that was over, I didn't I, it didn't occur to me that in order to stay here in the UK on a tier two visa, which is a work permit, I need to work. So <laughs> because I wasn't necessarily finished with the UK and maybe the UK wasn't finished with me, uh, I need to find a role. And I had been in touch with, and it, unbeknownst to me, 
there were a group of venture capitalists who were working on my behalf to give me opportunities to meet interesting entrepreneurs. You didn't even know. Well, I didn't. I had asked some, but others were just doing this. There's Lars Feldstone Nielsen, who's out of Balderton. There's Harry Briggs, who's out of um, BGF, as I've already mentioned. There's a guy named Jason Pinto, who was out of Amadeus. All of these people are sort of sending me, you know, different meetings, to, different meetings to meet on. Oh, go have a coffee with this person. Go see this person. Those are the people who actually help to identify what would be the stage company. So they've done whatever round of funding they had done. They had whatever sort of gaps in their management team. They had whatever sort of operating plan for the future that made sense and sort of Eric might fit into one of these organizations. And if indeed, based on dating, we found that the entrepreneurs, the founders and I came together and made sense, then it might be something that actually occurred and I could have a way to stay here in the UK and not just stay, but to actually flourish here in the UK in an interesting role. So that has also been a very recent example of how, you know, there have been a number of individuals who have helped to make my uh, career, an interesting career, challenging and rewarding one. So you've had very a very good experience with UK VCs by the sounds of it. Those ones a I have. Group. <laughs> <laughs> Those I have. No, the ones I've worked with Index, I've worked with Octopus. I, all of them have been fantastic. I've worked, now we work with Episode One, we work with Redline, we work with Balderton, we work with a few uh, in the United States, and just yeah, they've been good experiences. Very good experiences. If I came to work for you tomorrow, mm-hmm. hypothetically, I was mm-hmm. very happy in my, my role here, mm-hmm. what would be the first thing I'd notice about the way you do things at Touch Surgery? Hmm. I, I, I think you'd notice that, I think you'd probably notice, when you, when you see the number 2 million users, 2 million downloads, that's a lot of people. So it feels very consumer app and yet we're not a consumer app. So we're a consumer because your physician, your surgeon might say to you, your child or your partner is getting ready to have an operation and I'd like you to know what's going to be happening while that person's under sedation, under my care. And so it might actually have you do it. But most of the people who are using us most of the time are individuals who are, who are in the trenches of you know solving problems that take the most serious approach and that's to cut a body open cut out something or sew something and do something which is invasive, which is inherently risky. So what you note is that our organization is not, you know, it's it's a bit fun. You know, we do have a, an environment which is about creativity around thinking through problems, but you know, it's not as much of that you as you might think about some startups that feel, you know, it's all popping and all skateboards and all that. We have a lot of doctors. We have a lot of PhDs. We've got a lot of those sort of people who are sort of sitting here saying, you know, if indeed this simulation, even in our animation studio, which is our largest department, so we have an animation studio that helped to create these simulations, those people are sitting here as they're going through and looking at, you know, some a gynecological, a gynecological um, procedure, which is to remove a hysterectomy. Who would just move, which is to do, perform a hysterectomy. That person saying that this is something which is going to change a person's life, it's got to be right. The way that we're teaching has got to be correct. So there's a manner in which it's not just correct so that the consumers will accept it, but so that we actually are doing good and not doing harm. 
and I've got to ask this this question. Mm -hmm. What was it like to work with the Obama administration? You know, I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. We have just elected, you know, I was there under George Bush II, and um, Barack Obama's elected. And Barack Obama, this is something that I don't tell people, but Barack Obama I've known since 1988 when we started law school together. So we started, we were in the same class in law school, and he, you know, always had a light and an aura around him. And if he's listening to this podcast, you Which know I'm you have sure a big he fan. He will. Uh, maybe I'll send it to him. He, he's, I'm sure he's going to be a big fan, too. But, you know, so I've been watching his career and, you know, his short career as a senator and then his um, quick ascension into the presidency. And I wanted to be involved. My whole family. I mean, my whole I was born in uh, the segregated South during the civil rights movement. So for us, you know, the, I, we'd always been preached to that you could be anything you wanted, including president of the United States. And I think we believed it deep down, but then it happened. And it was like, wow. And so anything that we could do to help to advance that presidency in the United States and an agenda that seemed to make so much sense. And so, you know, I looked for a place where I could actually be helpful. I wasn't one of the biggest donors. I wasn't on the finance committee. I wasn't part of a policy group, um, just supportive. And um, I was asked to be part of the Small Business Administration. There was a, a, a subcommittee that was looking at underserved communities and how entrepreneurship can be encouraged among women, uh, minorities, and veterans especially disabled veterans. So it was a very, and so those sort of issues of inclusion in the economic process, because there are government set-asides, there are programs that help to make sure that these individuals can actually be part of good government contracts, whether it be for the Department of Defense or the Department of the Treasury. So all of this is very, very important. But my special interest was in how do you actually raise money? So it's very good to get a contract with the government, but then there's working capital. There's expansion capital, and just by, you know, sort of you have a contract to do back, back office uh, data, um, you know, data analysis, you've got to do a lot of things in order to be able, and the government's not going to pay you all that up front, so you've got to tool up, you've got to be ready to actually do your partnering, how do you do that? And so my issue, and one that we got to address with Kathy Hughes, and Kathy Hughes is, you might know her as a billionaire um, in the United States who started Radio One and then TV One, and so she's, you know, an, a, another woman of color who's done sensational, interesting things. And so she was the chair of that committee. And we looked at ways in which banking, venture capital, private equity should be brought to this particular population, which really hadn't accessed it, even though this had been part of government set-aside programs for you know decades and decades. So it was, it was a good piece. So that's, I just, you know, sort of volunteered and I was fortunate enough to get um, to be then chosen. And so that's how I started working with the Obama administration. I found it very rewarding, very, very rewarding. So I've noticed that things have changed a lot over the last sort of 10 to 20 years um, with the ability to be out while mm -hmm. you know, being a, a high profile uh, career person such as yourself. Mm -hmm. As a gay man, how does tech fit into these changes? I'm trying to think again about my organization and sort of what it looks like and who's there and sort of why we're able to attract what I would say is a very inclusive group, including in terms of, um, you know, gender identity, um, and then also race, and then also 
um, what I call sexual orientation. So I would say that the people who I know who are like me, so my, my cohort of people who, who came up with the same sort of backgrounds, you know, I grew up in the American South. I went to school uh, in the uh, leafy Northeast uh, and then um, spent time working along the Eastern seaboard, you know, in those elite cities from Boston down to DC. That's sort of where I cut my teeth. The people who are like me, who've had similar sorts of experiences, who are also gay um, in organizations, I find that, you know, these days, most of them are at a stage in career where they've got uh, credibility of, they've got credibility of practice. They've been doing whatever it is they for, for, for a while. They're known as, as experts in these particular fields. I don't know how they started, whether or not they started off as open in the workplace, but now it doesn't seem to matter so much. In terms of technology, I do note that there are, you know, the people that I know that are high up in those sorts of organizations have been able to live openly since the beginnings of their career. So I, I think in some ways tech has been for most of us a place where sexual orientation label, what label of let me put it this way, at least for men. Now, I don't know for women. That's something I have to think about. So as I'm even answering this question, I'm sort of, and this is why it's a little bit hard for me, I'm sort of thinking what I know about the women, the ladies in terms of this. But in terms of the men, it seems to have been a place, it seems to have been a field that's been relatively embracing, more so than my, my, my friends are lawyers. And my, my colleagues from law school obviously are lawyers. And that doesn't necessarily seem to be the space, uh, you know, working with family offices, working um, overseas, working in the Middle East, working in Asia. They just, you know, those don't sound like places where, you know, being an openly gay man or woman seems to be, seems to work as well. Not as embraced. Yeah, it's not as embraced, correct. But in um, technology and sort of these Western world, in this Western world and in these um, fast growth companies in particular, and even in, in, in large companies from IBM to Microsoft on to Amazon, those sort of people, you know, there's an embrace of, in Apple, there's an embrace of people, um, with, uh, you know, other in the category. Now, I would say I see that in terms of sexual orientation. I'm not seeing it in the same way in terms of gender. Absolutely, even with or without sexual orientation is another factor. And I don't see it in terms of race in the way that I'd like to. So sexual orientation has been fine, but I don't find any other leaders who are black in, I mean, not very few here in the UK. Uh, in the U.S., I um, find very few women who are making big decisions in organizations. I've named the people who've been my mentors here in the U.K., all, all men. Uh, one black man, Jason Pinto's a black man at Amadeus, uh, and then all the others are white men. Uh, I don't really my hear my bankers, our company's lawyers, our company's accountants are all men and somewhat maybe Asian men. Yeah, that might right. that, that that's sort of it. So I don't I don't know, Haley. I'm very concerned. That's the thing that concerns me a great deal. I, I just don't uh, and I, I find the, the UK to be such an an embracing environment. And there is Theresa May and there has been Margaret Thatcher, women who are leading the country in terms of politically. Maybe we don't like their politics, but at least they are sort of the leaders of parties, which we haven't had in the United States. 
And yet I find that even with all of that and that, and that sort of embrace that exists, that in fact we just, I'm not finding it in the places where I think I would find it. I'm not, I don't find many of you, Haley. I mean, do you run into many of you? No. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know what that's about, though. I don't know what the particular pathology is here in the UK. I can kind of talk about that in the US, but I don't know what it is here in the UK. And so it, it perplexes me. It really does perplex me. It's one of the things that we work hard at at Touch Surgery, the question of, you know, our senior leadership team feels to us very male, very, very men, male of color, but it is very male. Um, our, leave, uh, our CFOs, a woman, our head of our most, our biggest, um, our biggest division uh, for revenue is a woman, but, you know, as we think across the spectrum, there's probably you know, 10 guys and two women. So it's just, it's something that we have to work on on a daily basis and we think about actively. Yeah, I mean, what gives me great hope is most conversations I'm having with leaders, mm -hmm. they're talking to me about gender and ethnicity mm -hmm. as as two key, um, key issues and things okay. that they want to get right. So whilst I think the numbers are low, conversations are happening but now what we want to do is well, particularly why I exist as an entrepreneur is help companies turn that into real action mm -hmm. by continuing to have the conversation but helping them with ways in which they can make the fundamental shift not just make it about a marketing campaign so I think that's kind of that's the next wave we're on now which gives me hope which in, in can I ask you a question? This is, I mean, yeah, you can edit this out, but I'm sort of curious. Within your organization, what are your numbers like? I mean, what should I be seeking? Because your numbers must be better than mine. Well, we have a very even split of male, female, um, and, you know, high percentage of LGBT, funnily enough. Uh, no, amazing how that happens. And, and, do you, and is there a woman your next one in line? Your, your number yes. two? Yeah. That's the other thing I like to see. I like to see that we don't have exceptions, but that we have, so that there's one individual who's sort of out there and then everyone below them reminds you of the, the general paradigm, but that there is depth in yeah. because there's so much depth in terms of talent of women. And so that's the thing which I also, which then gets me even more concerned that, you know, bringing in one person to the top of your data organization does not, does not the change make you don't get to we don't get to congratulate ourselves and then go home you know we've got to say that you know there has to be you know there has to we have to do better than this so i think it is and something we look at here it is about the entire pipeline mm -hmm. and what's happening with the mix yeah. and what's happening with those those peers who are moving through together both Correct. men and women if we just look at it purely around gender mm -hmm. we've got to look at what's that relationship Correct. and just because someone steps out for a year or two to have a career break, to mm -hmm. look after an aging parent, to have a child, mm -hmm. that doesn't have to change the dynamics radically. Correct. So Good. it is Good. the mix, the entire journey I think we need to be aware of, mm -hmm. not just top and entry mm -hmm. level, but when they come in, because we know that a lot of companies are doing 50-50 recruitment, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. they're still not staying. Yeah, they're still not staying. So we need to look at what's happening on that career journey. I had this conversation, so I was um, recently, I recently spoke at a thing called the Powerless 100 Foundation Gala, and this was, this is for, you know, black um, entrepreneurs and business people here in the UK, and the conversation that they asked me to have, I was giving a keynote um, 
And the conversation that they wanted me to have with the audience was about, you know, how did I get to where, you know, it's always that question, how did you get to be where you are? And it's like, yeah, that's not that interesting. Anyone can read about that and go to LinkedIn, you can figure out, it's pretty easy. But when I, I, so I wanted to talk about sort of why is it that I'm, you know, relatively senior in the world of, um, of fast growth tech, but I don't have anyone with whom I'm talking in any organization who's advising me, helping me to raise money, giving me money, you know, any of those sorts of things that are women, just no one. And so it's like, so I'm saying there's no ecosystem out there in which these, um, in which the, uh, conversation and which the actions are happening. And I'm a little tired of conversation. I need action. So I need actual sort of activity. And we work very hard then to choose in the U.S. We have our law firm and our law firm is a, is the, the um, African-American woman who is our lead attorney and who does fast growth transaction work out of San Francisco. You know, she might be one of three, but she's at least our one of three. So it's, so that's the kind of thing that we now actively work toward because we don't believe also in just changing our own dynamics, but we can use our economic power to also impact the other organizations. So that's also what we do. And I think that's important. That's what we're seeing a lot of real change makers do mm-hmm. internally, but look at actually how does their spending dollar have power? Correct. Absolutely. Because, you know, as humans, mm-hmm. we're motivated by certain things in the same way we can say to recruiters, actually, no, we want a list that's 50-50, mm-hmm. or we want a list that this is a mix and a list that reflects what the census data is because we are a government office, for example. So we can say that to people who are incentivized to do it and find it. And if you have to work a bit harder, you just might have to, but they are there. Absolutely. And it forces us to cut through, you know, those biases that we all have as humans as well to think differently around the problem. So I think absolutely looking at those motivational levers and starting with who gets paid, Mm -hmm. it certainly helps. I have, it's funny how many times I've had the conversation, and you're, I think, part of the solution set to this, that, you know, the conversation I have, well, we're trying to find the best people, and we're trying to find them quickly, it's like, that's what I'm trying to do. And the best people will be a lot of women, you know, there, there will be, I promise you. Um, and I'm sorry if your networks don't easily evidence those. But you're either they will start to evidence those, or well, I'll have to work different. I'll have to work with someone else who actually finds this to be useful and has figured out a manner in which this can actually be worked. And I've had a number of recruitment agencies, actually external, to say to me that we are we're, we are very very focused. It's an embarrassing statement when people say this to me. We're looking for the best, and somehow that means something different than my definition of the best is. Which means, you know, I still get a slate of complete, complete slate of men and a complete slate of white men at that. And I find it very interesting that that is called, that is still a conversation about the best. That sounds like it's the easiest. Yeah, I, that's what I say it is also. And that's what I have to say. It's like, that sounds like it's the easiest. And if that's what you can do, well, I, you know, I, I recommend you do it for another organization. But for our organization, we, we, we try a little harder. We, we try a little harder. So. What is your superpower? <laughs> <laughs> now for a serious question. Wow, what is my superpower? Yeah, that I can fall asleep 
anywhere if you just stop talking to me for four minutes that is my superpower i can catch up on my sleep anywhere i'd say uh my superpower is actually not i think what most people would consider a superpower it's it's the willingness to toil and and have some grit that you know i'm just going to continue grinding away that's and and not to just do it for a little while but to do it for decades now (laughs) You know, that is, I would say that that is my superpower. How humiliating, but it is. I, I really do think that people, there's, there's something to be said for people who take on a task and toil through uh, and keep on and keep on, yeah, keep on keeping on. Keep on trucking. Yeah, absolutely. Look at you. I didn't know you were American. That's what Australians have kind of owned that term oh, okay. a little bit too. So I think it's got a few different cultural references. Oh, very good. Very good. So lastly, we've spoken a lot about mm-hmm. inclusion and diversity really in, in business and mm-hmm. what that means. But what does success really mean for you? I think, you know, I'm going gonna, I, I, I'm gonna to put it this way. I think success is taking failure, taking adversity and challenge, particularly in the entrepreneurial space, learning from it and doing something extraordinary with that knowledge. It is a privilege. And this is one of the great things about entrepreneurship and venture-backed companies. It is a privilege to be able to fail royally, to try something that is just outlandish, have persuade people that they want to be there with you in that on that journey, fail miserably and still be able to say, but I learned from this, we've learned from this, and there's something else that we can do uh, from here that's actually going to, you know, turn this around and then turn it around. I think that, that's great. So the turnaround king. Uh, well, see, that would sound like a superpower, but I'm not confident that I'm the turnaround king, but I certainly am a person who believes that, um, you know, most resumes are made up of success. They're, they're just success markers, right? But the more interesting thing is to have a failure sort of a marker and see what you got from the place where you actually hit a wall, things didn't go as planned, and what did you do about that? And that innovation that comes from that shows, I think, real entrepreneurial grit. That's, I think that's maybe a little bit underappreciated, but I think, and undervalued, but I think it's one of the most valuable traits of a really, really great entrepreneur. Well, Eric Collins, it's been an absolute pleasure to see you again. Thank you for coming into our offices. I'm going to release you to your team to go and give them their their Friday afternoon beers because mine are running late, obviously. Get you back for the 5 o'clock deadline. Thank you. And I hope to see you soon. Haley, it's been great talking to you. This is a good, good conversation to have with you. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Workin' With podcast series. You can find us on iTunes and at workinwith.com. That's W-E-R-K-I-N with.com.